Aaron Slutkin, thank you very much for coming in today. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. You're an office mate, first year teacher here at Gilman, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you about your experience coming back to Gilman and some of the things that you're interested in. Thank you very much, Jake. So maybe we could start out and talk about Abraham Lincoln and Absolutely. where your fascination. I see you've got two books here about Lincoln, which, yeah, we'll get to these as your book recs, but how did you uh, become interested in him at first? Sure. So uh, I reckon that any teacher at Gilman could tell you that I've long been interested in history, especially American history. Uh, and some could tell you that I've always been interested in English, um, always had an appreciation for good writing. Uh, and, and I was never interested in Lincoln really before the last two years. Uh, 19th century history just didn't do it for me. I was interested in the Vietnam War. I was interested in the civil rights movement. And then one summer, um, I was a, a fellow at a program in D.C. called Hudson Institute of Political Studies. We read Plato. We read Machiavelli for political theory. Uh, we read Shakespeare for literature. Uh, and then we read Lincoln for uh, statesmanship and also political wisdom. Um, and immediately, I, I was hooked, not just because of, of, of the great example of political leadership, which I'm sure you want to talk about, but also because of the beautiful, beautiful writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really set me on uh, to a study of, of Civil War history in general. Um, I got hooked. I caught the Civil War bug, as, as many of us do. And um, since then, haven't been able to stop reading about it, uh, going to battlefields. Uh, <laughs> so I've you know, hit my boomer moment early, uh, <laughs> but I can't, uh, I can't shake it. Awesome. What battlefields have you gone to? So I've been to Gettysburg a few times um, this summer, got to help lead a, a trip there. Um, it's called a staff ride. So you think of a reenactment of P as, um, people in the uniforms with the weapons trying to uh, do everything realistically mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, be in the right position. A staff ride is more, okay, we're at this position. Um, the student who's assigned to play General Longstreet, Lee's second in command, or General Lee himself, now has to give a five-minute speech uh, describing why they're there, what are their actions, and explain uh, what exactly they're doing. Um, and also, you know, if you decided on, let's say, July 3rd, 1863, to lead 15,000 men uh, across the fields of Gettysburg, where they all, half of them met their deaths, probably have to explain why. Um, so I got to, I got to partic participate in one of those two years ago, uh, help lead one last year. Uh, so that, that's definitely the highlight of that. I've been to Fredericksburg um, this summer on a drive from uh, Durham, North Carolina to Las Vegas. I stopped in mm, at you Vicksburg. You cross country. Yes, almost. Um, unfortunately, I stopped five hours short of the Pacific uh, <laughs> and started about two hours short of the Atlantic, but I'll, I'm going to count it. Uh, so I also went to Vicksburg National Battlefield, uh, which is my westernmost one. Uh, site of a months-long siege that Grant conducted in 1863 that ended um, in a wonderful poetic touch on July 4th of that year. Hmm. You know what I was, I get an email from this uh, literary magazine every day and I was just looking through it. I don't really read all of it all the time, especially in the mornings because I'm teaching and, and not, but I got one today about today is, let me actually pull it up. Today is the day, and I thought it was so fitting to have you in for the podcast today because... So this is the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, yes, correct? Yes, you're exactly yes. right. I didn't have to pull it up. Gave, um, so this was, well, I, 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 don't, I think it's September 22 today, isn't it? 
Um, today is the 22nd. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So today is September 22, and today Lincoln uh, signed the, set, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation saying that uh, people in the South had until uh, until New Year's 1863, mm-hmm. yes, New Year's 1863, uh, to, uh, to release their slaves and give up arms. So pardon me to give up their arms or else their slaves would be released. Uh, And it also has a touch of uh, poetry that the actual Emancipation Proclamation issued on January 1st, 1863 does not have. At the end of the proclamation, uh, Lincoln writes, and this is in his own hand, Lincoln writes that uh, the slaves shall be henceforth and forever free. Uh, The final document does not have that, although that phrase forever free is used by Eric Foner, the historian, in one of his volumes, and it's also, I think, used a few times by King. Hmm. So in your first, I guess, uh, iteration of Lincoln and when you did this program in D.C., what were the first speeches or readings that you did on Lincoln that got you so fascinated with him? Sure. Uh, so we only did speeches. Um, you get the gospel itself. Uh, and... I believe the first speech that we wrote is one of Lincoln's first and greatest speeches, his uh, Young Men's Lyceum Address. I don't have a date on this one. I believe Lincoln was 28 years old at the time. And the context of this speech is the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois, was, uh, you'd think of it sort of as a, as a place where a young man would come in to hear speeches. And that's exactly what it was. So they would have guests, sometimes local, as Lincoln living in Springfield was, uh, sometimes who would come and, and do lecture tours, as was common in the 19th century. And Lincoln takes as his subject in the Lyceum Address, he calls it the perpetuation of our political institutions. Um, he was responding to what he saw as a rising lawlessness in the country. He cites incidents of lynchings um, all throughout, not only the North, um, pardon me, not only throughout the West, but in the South. Uh, and he he frames it a, a, as the problem of okay, so we've inherited um, our political institutions, how do we preserve it? He says of the founding generation, um, theirs was the task to possess themselves of this goodly land and to uprear upon its hills and valleys an edifice of political liberty and equal rights, a big task. Tis ours only to transmit it. So they did the hard work, we have to keep it, we have to keep it, um, keep it together. And this is a, a challenge that Lincoln faces throughout his career. At this point, I believe he was a legislator uh, in the Springfield State House. Um, he's, he's obviously not president of the United States fighting a civil war that he did not know was going to happen. Um, but one of, this is one of the signal, uh, I think, pillars of, of, of his political idea, which is we have to save the Union, um, not, not out of some sort of uh, we have to save the Union because if we don't, then there will be... Uh, there will be lawlessness, right? He sees lawlessness as a symptom, um, not a problem in itself, but because th- this union in particular is worth saving. In a eulogy he gives for Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, the great compromiser, he says that Clay loved his country most partly because it was his own, but mostly because it was a free country. It was a country, as he later says in the Peoria Address of 1852, worth the saving. Hmm. Um, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of information there. Uh, how did how did Lincoln, I guess, like come to his position on slavery? Because at first, you know, like what was his position on slavery, and was it consistent throughout his life? When did it shift? Um, and 
you know, some people say that his driving force was to preserve the union. Where does slavery kind of come into his motivations as sure. a leader? Sure. So where he gets his um, where he gets his original anti-slavery thoughts is a question that's probably never going to be answered. Um, and where he was, so he grew up in Kentucky, that's slave country. His father did not own slaves. Um, and whether that was for a, a personal distaste, I'm not sure. It was definitely um, also for financial reasons. The Lincolns were not uh, particularly wealthy. Uh, at some point, Lincoln takes, and this is as a young man, takes a, a ride down the Mississippi River through to New Orleans, where he probably saw um, some pretty horrific scenes of slavery. And at this time, writes a letter to his friend, I think Joshua Speed, uh, denouncing slavery. Mm -hmm. So we maybe can draw some evidence from that, and biographers certainly have. Uh, in terms of his evolution on slavery, in this address um, that I've just cited, the Lyceum Address, he gives some complicated thoughts about slavery. Um, he says that uh, one, of the, one of the problems he sees with lawlessness is, so, okay, so if lawlessness proceeds, the lawless in spirit are going to become lawless in practice. Um, think of mobs and rioting. And the people who are good, loyal citizens are going to lose the attachment to the country. And when that happens, you have certain men of particular talent who won't, like Lincoln, uh, who won't have their ambitions wet by maintaining and preserving an edifice erected by others, uh, who he calls them the family of the lion and the race of the eagle, uh, who are going to want to do something new. A towering genius, he says, disdains a beaten path. And the specific formula he gives for what these towering geniuses might do is to, uh, I think, make slaves of free men or make free men of slaves, basically a mass emancipation or a mass slavery. So he sees both of those as problematic. Um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, so this is, this is when he's 28 years old. Again, I, I think maybe early 1830s. Uh, he b rises as a politician as the slavery crisis rises in pitch. Um, so the Mexican-American War, uh, which Lincoln believed that President Polk started to gain territory for slavery, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln opposes, um, and he loses his seat as a result. Uh, that's in 1848. In 1850, the Kansas the repeal of the Missouri uh, Compromise is first proposed. 1854, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Throughout this time, Lincoln is emerging as a voice um, to limit slavery. Uh, so Lincoln basically saw that the founding generation, they couldn't abolish slavery, even though he thinks they opposed it uh, in principle. So what they did was they sought to limit it to the South. Uh, and, and so that Lincoln took this as his policy, mm -hmm. believing that the federal government did not have the power without a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery. Uh, so this is his position in the major addresses which he lays out. Uh, that you have to keep slavery uh, tied to the South. That's not a radical thing to do. In fact, the radical thing to do is what the Southerners are proposing, which is to extend slavery into the new territory to the West. Hmm. How did some of those uh, territories in the West, like Kansas and Nebraska and those like emerging states, how did they feel about slavery? Because... I mean, you know, you've got Texas, you've got that whole Midwestern region, and they all all had different feelings towards the spreading of slavery to their territories. Sure. So one of the problems with the political crisis of Kansas, Nebraska, is that um, 
so the 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 doctrine of popular sovereignty would have been a good test for this. This is the doctrine of um, of Stephen Douglas, who opposes Lincoln in 1858 and in 1860. Um, and uh, so perhaps if there were fair and free elections, one could have figured this out. The problem is elections weren't fair and free. Uh, you had ballot stuffing. You had violence. Um, you had people from from both sides flocking um, to live in these areas and to vote in them, or to just come for just a day. Uh, stuff your ballot and then leave. So it, it's hard to say, um, but I think Lincoln probably would have rejected the premise of, of your question, which is that um, no man can have a political right in owning another. It doesn't matter how the voters of Kansas or the voters of the territories of Kansas and Nebraska feel about slavery. They have no moral or political right to establish it there. Mm -hmm. Not only because slavery is wrong, but also because the framers of the Constitution intended for slavery to be limited to the states where it already existed. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so Lincoln, you said he's kind of emerging as a political leader in yes. his mid-20s, late-20s. Um, he's born in a log cabin. He's not educated as a young man. How was he kind of infused with these leadership qualities and moral uh, moral compass as a, as a young person. I mean, 28 is a pretty young age to be, you know, standing up and making his way as a leader in the, in the United States. Sure. So um, I, I think you have to identify a natural brilliance uh, to him. It's, it, I think it's easy and probably true to say he was just born with it. Uh, I think the first quality that probably emerges in Lincoln beyond that is his curiosity. Uh, so his father wasn't an educated man, and I think he resented him for that. He also wasn't a curious man. I think he definitely resented him for that. So Lincoln, um, at least according uh, to himself, as early as he can, starts reading. Uh, the greatest teachers he had were Shakespeare, uh, the, the King James Bible, and he also read uh, widely in political tracts, so we're talking about pro-slavery and anti-slavery arguments uh, he at one point bragged of having completed uh, a, a volume of exercises by Euclid. Um, so again, this is probably the idea of, of the 19th century liberal arts man, um, but he's trying to scramble it together in a cabin, or at least by now a middle-class house in uh, Springfield, Illinois. Uh, in terms of the specific qualities of leadership, Lincoln identifies in Henry Clay, and again, this eulogy, Henry Clay, uh, Lincoln says in the first Frederick Douglass debate, is his beau ideal of a statesman. Um, not sure what the word beau is doing in there, uh, but he identifies in Clay three qualities. First, an indomitable will. Second, an eloquence. And three, he calls it judgment. I think, um, uh, I think political philosophers would usually call this virtue prudence. So if if Clay uh, is Lincoln's beau ideal of a statesman, and Lincoln uh, admires these virtues in Clay, I think it's fair to say that Lincoln, who, uh, let's say, had an idea of his self-worth, probably thought he had them too. So we have judgment, um, a sort of political prudence. I think that comes from a hard life of success and failure as a lawyer um, and of repeated success as, as failure as a politician. Um, eloquence, I think that comes from wide reading and writing. I also think it's just something that you're born with. Uh, and then an indomitable will. I think he was, well, I don't think he was. He was extremely ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have someone who comes from from uh, poverty in, in Kentucky to president of the United States without having like what he calls clay, an indomitable will. 
so I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these qualities he's born with. Um, but in terms of, of his leadership uh, during the American political, political crisis, uh, as far as you could say that the Civil War and, 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 and its onset was fortunate, he was fortunate to have been born during this time. Mm -hmm. if, the, for, if somehow the crisis of slavery had been settled, you would not have heard of, of Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk about that in my leadership class about innate traits of leadership and versus you know the time that the leader exists and whether there are great leaders in American history that we don't know about because they didn't have a massive crisis to prove themselves sure. during. Um, another thing that when you're talking about Lincoln's innate characteristics and just what he did to become such an important leader in history reminds me of what my class is going to talk about today, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. And there's a lot in Franklin's autobiography about his own self-discipline and his own like guidelines to moral virtue, right? He has these 13 virtues that he makes a chart of and he's, you know, checking off each day, you know, whether I was modest today, whether I was, uh, you know, exerted humility in my life today. His first question every day when he wakes up is, what good shall I do today? And then when he goes to bed, what good have I done this day? Um, so it's interesting. We're talking about the American dream in my in my English classes and um, you know, a lot of what goes into the American dream are these self-guiding principles and virtues. And a lot of it really comes down to discipline, I think. Yes, absolutely. Especially for a Republican citizen, right? Uh, a Republican citizen holds the responsibility of the nation on his shoulders. And, and that's why, um, for example, you have such a strong temperance movement in the United States, right? Uh, alcoholics usually aren't good Republican citizens. Why there's such a concern with the private life of, of individuals. Lincoln did not drink. Um, I, he never supported the temperance movement, but I think it was just something in personal discipline that's just not what respectable men of, of, of his time did. Now, in terms of Lincoln as an orator, yes. um, you know, he obviously had these personal qualities and acts of discipline that he worked on, and he worked on himself a lot, but he still had to stand up in front of people and you know, sell his ideas and sell himself. What was it about his speaking or his speech and his, I guess, charisma that appealed to so many people? Sure. Uh, so let's get rid of some misconceptions first. You ask, um, you pull a room that has had to memorize at some point uh, the Gettysburg Address, what kind of voice Lincoln had, and they probably um, would have said a deep, booming voice of the kind that his opponent, Stephen Douglas, had. He did not. He had what is described as a high, tinny voice, he was thought to be an awkward speaker. Um, he would stand and he would pace around. He didn't know quite, quite, quite he didn't know quite what to do with his hands. Um, he had this enormous frame with really long arms, and he just large ears. Yes, he, right. I mean, he's he, he's not the most attractive no, fellow he, you've ever seen. He's not JFK. No, certainly not. Um, and, and so he doesn't know what to do with his body when he talks. He grew into his appearances, so at the beginning, his voice would crack and he would pace awkwardly. Then usually toward the end, he would have the crowd more spellbound. He was not a natural orator, uh, as you would imagine. Um, when, when Aristotle talks in his, his ethics about the, um, about the man who's fit to be a leader, he calls him the great-souled man. He thinks of him as someone who walks slowly 
and who speaks in a stentorian voice, right? Perfectly true of lots of the other political talents of this age, not at all true of Lincoln. Um, there's also, and this isn't always true, but in generally thinking about Lincoln as the orator, uh, there's a leanness to his speech. Uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was thought to be uh, in the program events for the dedication of this, uh, the, the cemetery at Gettysburg in November 1863, not to be the signal event of that day. The signal event of that day was an oration to be delivered by the president of Harvard, Edward Everett, which lasted three hours long, right? Perfect 19th century address. This was a time when people would go to things like three-hour addresses. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Gettysburg Address, not three minutes long. I don't think it's not three hours long. I don't think it's three minutes long. So short, in fact, that the picture that we have of Lincoln at Gettysburg is blurry because the cameraman did not have time enough to set up his device. Um, now, he identifies, Lincoln does, in Clay, uh, his eloquence. It doesn't come from great power of antithesis. Does it come from an overloading of adjectives and adverbs, like you told your class to refrain from earlier? He calls it a kind of earnestness, and I think that's there in Lincoln. Um, there's a moment in his second inaugural address uh, where he says, he talks about, so this is March 1865. We used to do inaugurals in March. Um, he talks about how both sides of the war pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should ask a just God's assistance in wringing his bread from the sweat of another man's face, but let us judge not that we be not judged, quoting Matthew 19. Uh, I think there's just a kind of, uh, of, of really, first of all, there's a great self-control, let us judge not that we be not judged. Of course, I think Lincoln surely judged people who owned slaves. Um, but there's a kind of earnestness there. Um, a deep religiosity that's hard to avoid. There's also the savage humor um, uh, uh, that Lincoln had. So there's a moment, I think, in the Frederick Douglass debate in Ottawa where he's um, really laying into Stephen Douglass on Dred Scott, uh, and one of Douglass's supporters shouts, say something else besides Dred Scott, and Lincoln replies, yeah, I'm sure you want something that doesn't hurt so much. Uh, and the crowd, in, in the notes to this, it says, um, uh, thunderous applause and laughter. He was very funny. Mm -hmm. um, he was the sort of the master. He could do classical rhetoric, but he could also uh, do homespun humor and even tell you a dirty joke. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm interested. My history memory on the Douglas Lincoln debates is a little foggy, but mm -hmm. let's. What years were these going on, and maybe what were the distinguishing characteristics of these two candidates and how did they differ? Sure. So this would have been uh, the Senate election of 1858. Douglas and Lincoln are both running for senator. Uh, this is one of the first times in history that parties have nominated candidates for senator. The reason for this is, so back then, um, I think the 22nd Amendment was not in effect and therefore uh, state legislatures still elected senators. The problem was that Douglas had had a split from the Democratic Party and some people had thought of bringing him over to the Republicans. The Republicans did not want to do that. They wanted to nominate and elect someone of their own. So they had to put a line in the sand and say, Lincoln is our man. Um, now, the, the great contour of the debate is, is whether uh, the territories, the new territories, should be able to adopt con uh, constitutions mm -hmm. that can uh, support slavery. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Douglas says, of course they can, because this is the principle of self-government. Mm-hmm. The principle of self-government says that if you want something you can, and a majority of your community agrees, you can have it. Lincoln has a different idea of self-government. Of course, he's a Republican. He believes in self-determination. But there are things that aren't on the table. Um, there are things that are, uh, I think, as Oliver Wendell Holmes says, beyond the reach of majorities. The right to own slavery is one of them. And he says in his Peoria Address of 1854, uh, self-government is the right of, uh, of uh, is extension of political rights to each citizen. Of course, you cannot extend political rights to each citizen and at the same time promote slavery. Um, so Lincoln, the, this is the main issue of the debate. There are political intricacies in it, um, namely of the kind of constitu- whose constitution the voters of Kansas can adopt. That's a little bit inside baseball. For the most part, it's about the, um, it's about the extension of slavery into the territories of the West. Hmm. What was the appeal to uh, Douglas as, I guess, a candidate or a speaker other than his, the content of what he was talking about? Like, why did people like him? Was he a charismatic speaker? Was he, um, was he well-educated? What, what is his background? Sure. I, I, I don't recall the details of his education, but it, it, what you would expect from a great orator of the 19th century, Douglas was. He had a deep, booming voice. He could be heard over these wide, 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 wide crowds. Uh, like Lincoln, he was terribly funny. Um, he could speak in these um, amazing, impassioned, uh, very long addresses. And I think, um, I think it was widely agreed that Douglas was, was the great orator of his time. Um, which is, uh, and then you have compared to him this sort of awkward guy who speaks in this loud, very high, tinny voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you would think, who is the greater orator of the two? We remember Lincoln now, but in Douglas's day, and Lincoln agreed on this, it was Douglas. And would you say that the reason that uh, Lincoln was successful in, I guess, winning over his crowds is the earnestness of his speech? Sure, the earnestness, the humor. Uh, I mean, this was a guy who, who perfected his craft in front of juries. Uh, so it, all, all political rhetoric is, is the art of persuasion, but this was something that Lincoln made his living on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln loses this contest in 1858. Uh, historians generally agree, agree that it's because uh, the census of 1850 didn't accurately reflect, reflect the new population of Illinois. The parts of the North Illinois where Lincoln was strongest had become um, very, very, very stuffed with new new voters. The parts of the South where Douglas was stronger um, had been declining in population. If Lincoln had, if they had waged this contest in 1860 instead of 1858 after the new census, Lincoln probably would have won. Um, but and there is also just the appeal of Lincoln's technical arguments. I mean, I don't know the extent to which the average attendee at the Lincoln-Douglas debate was, was uh, keeping score on, on who was correct in their arguments. Um, I think things like savage humor and, and, and just eloquence, which Lincoln and Douglas both had, were probably more important. Um, but you know, these, in terms of their, of their arguments, I think Lincoln comes out on top in most cases. Who did he run against for president when he ran for president? Who didn't he run against? So Douglas was the candidate of the Northern Democrats. Uh, oh, right. John C. Breckinridge was the candidate of the Southern Democrats. And there was a Constitutional Union Party also uh, whose candidate I cannot remember. And his vice president, was it Bu- was it Buchanan? No. Th- this would have been Hannibal Hamlin. Hamlin. Um, Hamlin was his vice president in 1860. 
and very unfortunately, his vice president in 1864 was Andrew Johnson. Right. I wonder why he decided to choose Johnson. I guess it's easy to say that in retrospect, but um, how about Buchanan? Do you know much about James Buchanan who came before Lincoln? I do. He is the, I think, um, so he's from Pennsylvania. Uh, I went to Northern Ireland once and saw a statue, uh, not a statue, a, a mural no of way. James Buchanan. <laughs> I was wondering, why is that on there? I, I think it's because he's a Protestant. Um, and now... Uh, there are no monuments or paintings to, to Buchanan in America. We think of him generally as the worst president in United States history, uh, just for failure of leadership during the secession crisis. His his secretary of war was spiriting arms away uh, from the north to the south as this uh, during the lame duck period between Lincoln's election when he takes over. Um, not Not particularly strong leadership. Yeah, I think both presidents on either side of Lincoln are historically acknowledged as some of the worst presidents we, yes, we had, right? Johnson. Um, so if you were going to teach an elective on Abraham Lincoln, what speeches would you for sure want to include in your in your class? What would be your top speeches to right. study? Uh, sure. So uh, I would say my favorites um, would be the Gettysburg Address, uh, his second inaugural address. In the Gettysburg Address, he's talking about... Um, taking increased devotion from those who gave the last full measure of devotion. Um, just an incredible funeral oration that I think sets uh, the policy of the rest of his, of his lifetime, which is to usher forth a, a new birth of freedom. Um, the second inaugural address, he's talking about sort of the war in retrospect. It, it had not ended, Lee had not surrendered, but the, the writing was at that point on the wall. Uh, the siege of Richmond could last um, not much longer. Um, uh, and, and he has, I think, at that point, probably the most moving rhetoric at any point in his, um, in his presidency. He's talking about the legacy of the war um, and the causes for the war and the need to usher in a new peace, um, not only amongst ourselves, and I think amongst ourselves he means the North, uh, but amongst all nations. Um, he talks about the blame for the war, too. What was the war all about? For him, the answer is slavery, um, the peculiar interest, uh, he calls it. And he says, um, in, in, I think, so again, also the earnestness of slavery, of Lincoln at one point during the second inaugural, he breaks into poetry of his own writing. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Um, and then he sort of settles, and I think is also his longest sentence as a rhetorician. And if God wills that it, the war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until all the blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Um, the war is about slavery, make no mistake, um, and if this is what God decided was necessary to end the war, it is just and righteous, right? All the blood drawn with the lash, um, and also all of the money, uh, the, the, uh, the wealth from the bondmen's unrequited toil. So I think in that speech, um, Lincoln's earnestness really shines, and also his rhetorical power. Um, the sh uh, extremely short address, too, only slightly longer. Um, than the Gettysburg Address. Uh, he, I also appreciate um, 
special message to Congress of July 4th, 1861, um, where he basically makes the case for, he makes the case for uh, his suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, basically saying, would you let one law um, go unexecuted? That is, would you let um, the, the law um, providing for a trial by jury go unexecuted and let the whole political edifice, edifice fall? I think most people would answer no. Um, we, something we discussed, his speech at the Wisconsin State Fair of 1859, talking about, um, talking about uh, free labor, uh, his Peoria address where he says, and I think this is now, I, most politicians think about this. Uh, I think Joe Biden thinks about this phrase, even if he doesn't know it, um, that we should save the union and make it forever worth the saving. Um, his Lyceum address, certainly, uh, and uh, several other speeches leading up to the war, including, I think, most famously, The House Divided. The House Divided, yeah. Wow, you've got a lot of Lincoln's words memorized, and I want to ask you about that because, first of all, it's really impressive, and two, I've been trying to talk to my leadership and character class about memorizing at least one poem this quarter mm -hmm. um, that we read in class and discuss, and I find a lot of value in memorizing poetry and words, but Absolutely. I'm curious why it is that you decided to, to commit some of Lincoln's words to memory and what value you find in doing so. Sure. Um, so the, the way uh, to do it is just constant reading. Um, eventually, it's just going to seep into your brain. And there's a lot of benefits, right? Um, rote memorization is just really, really good for your brain. Um, if, if you memorize, let's say, uh, baseball statistics, you're probably also going to be able to memorize Lincoln. Um, and also why it might be important, and, and right, my sophomores can't recite the Gettysburg Address. I think that's a problem. Um, <laughs> right, if you're going to walk into a voting booth, uh, if you're going to walk into a voting booth, you ought to know why you're there. Um, you should be able to, to be able to recite the Declaration of Independence um, so that you can remember that one reason why we vote is to maintain um, liberty for all, equal rights. If you walk into a voting booth since the Second American Revolution that happened during the Civil War, you should be able to think of the phrase "new birth of freedom," uh, and I think part of it is it, our memorized body of speeches should be uh, sort of a civic religion that we have as Americans that we carry forth in our interactions, not only with each other or with the voting booth, but also externally with members of other nations. Um, this is just it should be in the blood of every American. Hmm. And did you do memorization, rote memorization on your own before, like the previous two years, you said when you first got into Lincoln? Um, or was this something that you kind of picked up as you became more interested in his, his speeches and words? Um, I mean, there's always been stuff that you can recite from memory, um, just Bible verses that you're particularly fond of. Um, just you read these things enough and it seeps into your brain. Yeah. Were you into politics uh, kind of before this experience at, at in, in D.C.? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I worked in politics a bit. It's always been an interest, um, mostly, uh, though, American history uh, and European history to an extent has been has been my um, my interest. Mo now um, I've, I've caught the besides the Civil War, the war bug. Um, so I, I, I've uh, been given as a gift Churchill's collected memoirs on the war. Uh, which I will read, but before that, I've decided to hit World War One because I need the prequel, um, and war being, I think, the most important 
um, for unfortunate reasons of political exercises. Hmm. So when you say you caught the bug, meaning you're you're kind of doing your own personal studies at home and watching documentaries and, and readings on your own? Yeah, uh, so I only teach two classes um, besides uh, coaching football, so I, I, I do have lots of time to read. Um, I, I hope Mr. Hubeck doesn't hear that. Uh, but <laughs> no, It's all good, I yeah. think. I, you're, you're preparing to one day teach an elective. True. Um, so, uh, yes, reading um, right now, I think where most people start on World War I, uh, Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August, uh, an excellent sort of the best uh, the best version of history that pays attention to the actions of individual men and women um, put against the background of, of what their country's political beliefs are. Uh, this is the way that I think the, the greatest historians have written. And when you were at in undergrad at Duke, mm-hmm. uh, what did you study and maybe what are some of the classes that you took at Duke that, I guess, fueled your interest for history and maybe spark some of the things that you're working on now and studying and teaching now? Sure. Uh, so I eventually came to study, um, and it took a while to get there, uh, history of U.S. social movements and particularly of, particularly of the civil rights movement of, of the 1950s and 60s. I also studied Russian literature, um, and so I, I was big on Dostoevsky, Chekhov, uh, Tolstoy. Um, and lastly, I studied political theory. Um, so. Uh, mostly um, Enlightenment thinkers uh, and then anti-Enlightenment thinkers like Edmund Burke. Any classes that you took in four years that stood out as maybe your favorite classes of all time? Sure. Um, So I took a grad class my last semester called Social Contract Theory, um, and which was exciting because finally I had an opportunity not just to read parts of great books like Hobbes' Leviathan, Locke's Second Treatise, Rousseau's uh, Social Contract, but all of them, and also at the grad student pace, which is one a week. Uh, so sort of just getting to uh, knock things off the list. Great classes. Um, I had a great class called The Devil in Russian Literature. Um, the centerpiece of that was Dostoevsky's Demons, which is, uh, I think, probably my favorite Dostoevsky. My freshman seminar, uh, which was a, a gargantuan freshman seminar, uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. In one semester, we read War and Peace, Anna Karenina, um, Brothers Karamazov, and Crime and Punishment. In one semester? In one semester. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and also in, 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 in the first semester, uh, only for freshmen. You read um, you read all of those your freshman year of college? Yes. Wow. Who is the professor for that class? Professor is uh, Carol Apollonio, a Duke's Russian-lit professor. She's wonderful, um, great teacher. I think I ended up taking five or six classes with her. Uh, Devil in Russian Literature, Russian Film and Fiction, uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, one on Chekhov, and, and I think two I'm forgetting. Um, so just wonderful teacher who teaches great books. Uh, other great uh, classes, I took one really cool class that was a, a political economy and political theory class on game theory, um, and basically just asking the central question, why we as human beings cooperate. I took a game theory class and did not do well. And it was very hard for me. Uh, tit for tat and deferring and yes. yeah I remember those mm-hmm. little charts that we had to make yeah, that was a tough class for me um, Russian literature is passion of mine as well I took Very a good. Russian took a Russian professor course this summer as we've we've talked about but Dostoevsky one of my favorite writers too what why uh, why devil is devils I've never read that one why yeah. is that your favorite devils demons the possessed it's all translated from the same I think Russian possessed word. is the one I have yeah yeah that's um that's like the the one that's um mass market because 
it's been in translation since the 20s, uh, wonderfully so. Um, so I think it's Dostoevsky's funniest book. Um, there's gen- genuine attempts at, at intentional humor um, to the extent where you find yourself laughing out loud. Um, it's also uh, probably his most political novel, and, and again, I'm interested in things political. It, it looks at a group of Russian revolutionaries um, in in the 1860s or 1870s. Um, they're anarchists, they're nihilists, um, they've got terrible ideas and they're ready to act on them and bring about revolution. Um, but it is sort of like the characteristic of, of most revolutionaries where they're bent on their task. But at, uh, in one famous scene, they can't even agree uh, that they're having a meeting when they're actually meeting. Um, it also looks at the generation uh, before them, their fathers, like uh, Tirgenev's fathers and sons or fathers and children. Uh, it looks at the generations of fathers, so sort of how revolutionaries like these came about through bad parenting and bad ideas. Um, and it also is just a great... Um, I think Dostoevsky takes special care in Demons to state the importance of things like literature and things like beauty. Um, he at one point states famously and very radically that a picture of an apple, a painting of an apple, um, is more important, is better for someone than, than actually having an apple to eat, even mm. to the starving man. Um, I think that sort of has to be our, uh, I think that sort of has to be our manifesto as English teachers, right? The importance of beauty not for um, not for social uh, social betterment or, or progress or anything, but for beauty's sake. Um, reading good books, as Oscar Wilde said, is good for the soul. Reading bad books is bad for the soul. Um, it's not necessarily going to make you a better citizen. It's not going to make you necessarily a better person. Um, but it's reading and writing is still worth doing. Yeah, he is. Uh, Dostoevsky has a quote: "Beauty will save the world," yes. which I've always liked. Yes, not um, not bad ideas, not nihilism or anarchism. Beauty. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so, Aaron, I'm curious. Um, let me just check the time. Um, curious a little bit about your experience as a student here at Gilman. Um, what it was like and why that experience was so powerful for you that you decided, you know, you've got all of these interests and hobbies and things that you love to do and politics, obviously a driving force of, you know, your undergrad classes and, and for a little bit after school, you worked in politics. Why come back to Gilman to, to teach? Sure. Um, so, so having experience in politics was helpful because I think it's great at a young age to learn what you don't want to do. Um, and so I, I, of course, it has the problem because then you graduate from college and you ask yourself, what am I going to do? And the list is shorter, um, especially once uh, once you have to find a place to live. Um, and now I came to Gilman as a ninth grader. I came from a Jewish day school down the street. And uh, when I was looking at high schools, I sort of walked into this place and saw the shirts and ties and the beautiful building and thought, wow, this is this is really cool. I think I'd like to go here. Um, lucky enough to come here um, and, and, and study. And what I appreciated about it was, so you had the wonderful curriculum. Um, back then, we, we actually did do Western Lit. Um, so we read, uh, we read Homer and, and, um, and, and Sophocles and Chaucer and Shakespeare and Conrad um, and, and, and the Romantics. Uh, so I, I got exposed to the things I love and, and sort of had an idea of what I thought was important and what I wanted to study. Um, and then, of course, uh, 
as important, more important is is one of is the experience of going to an all boys school, right? So you get brotherhood. Um, you have an idea of what a really really good community looks like. And so thinking about what I wanted to do after college, um, one just teaching in general um, appealed to me. This was not the only school I applied to. It was the only school where I got a job. Uh, I wonder why. Um, uh, but I was particularly excited to come back because I I just know I you know I know and I'm probably living proof of, of like the powers of a Gilman education. And also, you know, the familiarity is great, being able to come back and spend time in a new way with my old teachers, getting to see in, in, in some of these students, my, you know, my friends and myself is awesome. Um, and, you know, homecoming, right, it, it is always a good thing. Yeah, pretty special. Um, yeah, so maybe tell us a little bit about what you're teaching here and a vision for you know, if you're going to stay here longer, if that's your plan, what would you like to teach? Obviously, Lincoln will probably be included in that. But if you had the choice of a course or a curriculum, what would you like to add? What do you think maybe is missing from all of the options of, of courses that we have at Gilman? Sure. Uh, so I think I would love to teach um, uh, electives on Lincoln and on Shakespeare. Um, uh, Lincoln, I think, for reasons that have obviously come out, uh, Shakespeare. Um, I, I don't. I don't know how much more I need to say about Shakespeare than he's the greatest uh, poet and playwright ever. Um, and I would love to share with students not only the works that I think um, to a, a achieve an, a diploma from Gilman School or from Roland Parker Primar, the works you must have read, Macbeth, Hamlet, A Midsummer's Night Dream, but also some of the minor works that I've um, become really interested in, like Coriolanus, Richard II. Um, uh, so I'd love to do that. Uh, I'd love to, um, so I, I, I teach world cultures for freshmen, and I really enjoy that. Um, the material is interesting, but more importantly, the freshmen are just fun. Uh, I, I teach also English 10, so this is the um, sort of the, the modern version of the Western lit curriculum um, where we read uh, the, the tellings, they call them, of the, of the originals. So you have the Odyssey, Macbeth, Frankenstein, and then um, what are called retellings um so uh madeline miller's circe uh who's a goddess uh, uh odysseus meets um and also margaret atwood's the penelope ad a novel a novella um from the perspective of his wife and then a modern sci-fi novel uh never let me go about bioethics by kazuo ishiguro who i know you have on your shelf um I have been looking at your bookshelf. Uh, There's a lot in there. I was... Yes, there is. The, the, even the double layers. Um, lots, lots hiding behind. <laughs> um, I'd love to. I'd love to teach a version of that that is the Western classics, right? I, I I'm not under the. I don't have um, the impression that they need to be retold. Um, I think they stand for themselves and 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 can with, and can hold the weight of, of modern criticism. Um, that uh, they, they don't include uh, a diverse enough voices or that the perspectives are antiquated. I think one, uh, beauty will save the world, right? They're beautiful and that's the most, that's the greatest reason why we should read them. Uh, and, and, and second, because I think um, they are, you know, I said that, I, I said sort of tongue in cheek that uh, liter reading good literature won't make you a better person. I think they're they're edifying and sort of agree with Samuel Johnson's uh, strain of literary criticism that these books can be used to teach important uh, moral important moral lessons to young men. Um, and, and then the other thing I would love to teach, uh, and, and this might be harder at an all boys school, is a class on Jane Austen. I love Austen, um, and I think you know 
reading all six of her novels in a semester a year is definitely doable and would be really fun. Wow, how'd you get into Jane Austen? I read Persuasion for the first time this summer. Yes, I love Persuasion. Um, I read it for a book club this summer. Um, I had a, a boss uh, at, at Hudson Institute in D.C., Rachel Mackey, and Mrs. Mackey uh, uh, made the case that young young men have to read Jane Austen. I read it, and I agree now. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by this Hudson School experience and what that was all about for you because it seems like it was pretty influential in terms of giving you time to read all of these great works and maybe inspire you to read more from that. Sure. Um, So the the program, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, It's six weeks in D.C. Students, 54 students come and live in dorms at Catholic University uh, in North D.C., close to the Maryland border. Uh, And every week they have a new set of professors. Um, They come. So they come from Boston College, from Baylor University, uh, from Yale, uh, all over the country, excellent, excellent, excellent teachers. Um, and each week they have new teachers and a new curriculum. Um, so sections of 18 students. First we read uh, all of the prints. We start with uh, the Republic of Plato, then move on to the American founding. So first an investigation of the philosophical ideas put forth by Locke and Montesquieu, um, and then uh, the Federalist Papers themselves. Then in week three, all Plato all the time, so uh, reading through most of the Republic, especially its more difficult ideas um, uh, about um, the forms and then the allegory of the cave, most famously. Uh, week four is is the American refounding or, or Lincoln week. Um, so then we, oh, I forgot to mention, you also read Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, so you read Tocqueville, you read Lincoln, you read also the important people of Lincoln's day. So that would be Frederick Douglass, Stephen Douglass, um, Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevenson, Alexander Stevens, not Stevenson, uh, not someone you admire, but important to understand why uh, the South thought they were, why the South thought it was a good thing to go to war for slavery, um, and to reinforce the fact that that was, in fact, what they were doing. Stevens says during um, his famous cornerstone speech, the inferiority of the black man is 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 the cornerstone of our new republic, um, as clear as it gets from a pretty high 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 ranking guy, um, and then reading um, Faulkner and James Baldwin as well. Week five they do public policy, um, so they can do workshops on drug policy, criminal justice policy, crisis in the Taiwan Straits, crisis um, in the Middle East, and then week six is sort of like a, a broader perspective. Uh, they do. Um, they do Bacon, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, um, thinking about a, a, a government founded on, on principles of science. Um, they read First and Second Samuel, uh, thinking about a religious, um, a religious uh, government run by King David. Um, and Shakespeare's The Tempest, um, thinking about the importance of political life and maybe um, a modern state run by uh, propaganda or magic. Uh, at the same time, they're constantly doing policy workshops, which are very, very high intense affairs. Um, in in they're doing war games, public policy simulations, Supreme Court simulations. They have lots of speakers events, um, and they also uh, knit together as a community. So I did this as a fellow in 2021, and then I did it as a, a teaching assistant, so responsible for a section of 18 students uh, just this past summer. So were the people there with you? Were they mostly? other teachers, people interested in politics, a mix of both, and who are some of the people that you kind of rub shoulders with at this 
person conference or, yeah. or um, some program. Mm-hmm. So it's um, they're all undergrads um, and, and ranging from age undergrads as young as I think 19 to as old as 27. Um, uh, the, the the staff are, is the is the woman who's uh, sort of envisioned and then created and then fundraised and uh, recruited for this program. A woman named Rachel Mackey, uh, who works at, at Hudson um, and is finishing or perhaps has finished uh, her PhD at Boston College on Aristotle. Um, there's the 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 guy who sort of supports and allows this program to be at Hudson. CEO there, John Walters, who's um was a cabinet level official uh, in George Bush's administration working on drug policy. Um, and then there are the, uh, there's the other staff, um, so a student at uh, student at William and Mary. And then um, my, the other two TAs, one would be a PhD student, now um, a, a policy analyst at uh, Hudson, and then a, interestingly enough, a divinity school student um, hmm. at uh, a divinity school student mix of of everyone yeah everyone yeah. fascinating that sounds like a really cool program yeah it really was i mean right getting to read great books getting to sit in on awesome seminars uh and just hang out with really really bright interesting students yeah yeah like the focus you know no matter what you want to do but committing a lot of these uh great books as you say great western books and speeches and leadership characters in the in the curriculum is you know, it rubs off. It makes a difference. Yeah, there's there's no substitute for a great books education. I firmly believe that. Um, something I would something that we need to I think revive at Gilman. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we we talk a lot about the Western canon, and you know, it's kind of a big hot topic, I guess, in humanities now. But a lot of the books you're mentioning, I think, do. Like they do tell the story of the universal experience and there's a reason that they stick around and they're read all over the world and translated in different languages because there's there's a beauty, there's a quality to them that like infuses the individual with what they need to know in, in life and what they need to understand. So I completely agree with that, with that thinking. Um, so Aaron, uh, I think we're getting to the end here, but... Um, I'm curious too, I'm teaching this leadership character class. We talked about Lincoln a lot. Are there any other figures or you know things that you think would be important to include in a course on leadership character, or the curriculum? I think you know, your interest in Lincoln and a lot of these uh, um, celebrated figures in American history is important. And I don't know, I, I would love to know if there's anything that I could maybe include in my course that you think would be important or, or fascinating for students to know about leadership and character. Sure. Uh, so I, I think the best and, and most important lessons about leadership um, probably have to be drawn from war. Uh, so uh, different different generals of the North and South. Um, there's George McClellan, who uh, came to command all Union armies pretty early in the war. I believe in um, 1862, came into Washington and saw a, a, an army that was defeated, that it was completely spiritless, that if things continued longer uh, and the Confederates attacked, was going to be defeated. Um, and trained and drilled and instilled esprit de corps to them, gave them a name in the French style, the Army of the Potomac, uh, and, and became and came to love them, um, McClellan writes, and this gives you the idea of, of the kind of guy he was, um, that he could be dictator if he wanted. Uh, that was probably true. Uh, so you have someone who is capable of leading and inspiring and becoming beloved. 
Um, but there's also failures of leadership too, and McClellan is better known for his failures. Uh, he constantly overestimated the force of the enemy. He never committed himself to the attack. He didn't realize, as Lincoln um, did, and as, as I think Grant did, uh, that abolition was going to become important to the war, uh, that you were going to need um, to make war on Southern society, not, um, as McClellan thought in a famous letter he writes to Lincoln, on the highest principle of Christian charity without respect to prejudice uh, to property or persons. Um, so there, there's a really, there's a great balance in McClellan as someone who, who, who was an excellent war politician, um, who was a, a brilliant organizer, uh, but who just did not have the mettle to fight. Um, and then there's someone like Grant, uh, who, who was quiet, wasn't the type to give a rousing speech like McClellan or, or, or to ride down in a military parade dressed in the finest, um, in the finest uh, appointment of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, but just had a dogged persistence. So um, in 1864, the war is the Grant's finally taking the war in the east into into the south. Um, there's a terribly bloody campaign that basically proceeds um, on a southwest southeast diagonal through uh, Virginia, and at every point, it's a terrible, terrible clash. Um, at Cold Harbor, for example, 8,000 um, Union soldiers are killed in 20 minutes. That was not a mistake that I said, not an exaggeration. 8,000 Union soldiers killed in 20 minutes. Uh, and Grant says, I will fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Um, he says, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer, right? Blazoned right in the front of newspapers, um, a brilliant, wonderfully pithy Grant statement uh, that rallied the nation um, and that Lincoln was very, very, very happy to see in one of his generals. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. I've been meaning to watch. I've read a little bit of the Grant Grant biography by uh, Cherno, mm -hmm. and I've been meaning to watch that four part. I think it's a four part documentary on him that came out a little while ago that I oh, never I had had the opportunity to watch. But he's an interesting character in history who's kind of reemerging because I think people have thought about Grant historically as kind of a drunkard and you know kind of came in the aftermath of Lincoln, but didn't celebrate as much. But he, he really was a powerful leader and force in American history. Yeah, the, um, for Grant, the contemporary judgment on Grant as general, um, besides those who, who incorrectly called him a butcher, uh, was, was, was very, very, very negative. Um, Henry Adams, who's a brilliant journalist um, and historian of, of the late 19th century, wrote at the time, Grant, things like Grant had no right to exist. Um, he should have lived in a cave and worn skins. The fact that after Washington, men like Grant should walk the earth is evidence enough to refute Darwin. Um, so, right, uh, hmm. uh, Grant, Grant did not uh, survive well in, 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 in memory. But, right, there, there has been a revival of him. The Grant biography is, is a good thing to write right now. I, I, I think... One, um, because right, he, he is getting his due, uh, his presidency was beset by scandal, but, and this is probably why he's being paid attention to, uh, he did enforce military reconstruction um, and, and thought that uh, the terror, terrorism and violence and, and reactionary force against the black man in the South was something that he couldn't stomach. Um, and then, again, rightly getting his due, brilliant commander, his campaign in Vicksburg, I think, is like the most brilliant military maneuver I've ever studied. Um, and right, good. It's a good time to be in the Grant industry. 
I think this is a good question to conclude our conversation on. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from talking to you, but I think it's always interesting to ask someone interested in American history, if you could be like a fly on the wall or an eyewitness, not involved, but just there to any event in American history, what would, what would be in your top um, selection? That is a very good question. Um, I've always been—I've always longed to see the Lincoln-Douglas debates for a few reasons. One, because you could see, you know, these guys at the height um, of their political action, um, the height of persuasion. Right? We think rightly so of we think rightly so as the Lincoln-Douglas debates is sort of like the pinnacle of um, of American political life. I'd also like to see, you know, what it was like to be at an event where it was just three three and a half, five hours of political persuasion. Um, probably also for a Lincoln speech, whether it's the second inaugural um, or the Gettysburg Address, might pick something a little longer to get uh, more bang for my buck. Um, and then I'd probably like to be, uh, in terms of like actually just in a room somewhere, fly on the wall um, when Lincoln in September uh, proposes to his cabinet uh, proposes to his cabinet the Emancipation Proclamation. Hmm. Um, this he actually proposed it in June of 1862, not September. Uh, and most of, almost his entire cabinet, except for one member, was in favor of uh, either delaying or not doing it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I forget how it was that he convinced. I remember watching. I think that's part of the movie, the Lincoln movie, which I don't know. You've definitely seen that one, right? I Spielberg. Have, yes. Yeah. Um, Approve of it. So it has the worst um, first scene of like any historical movie. And when I was watching it I, uh, this summer, I thought, like, my God, this is going to be awful. Um, so it's Lincoln is, is visiting a camp, as he sometimes did. And then so several soldiers walk up and just start re- reciting the Gettysburg Address to him, right. which I thought was like the most campy thing I've ever seen. Um, so it, it does not include the part of Lincoln's um, presidency of the Emancipation Proclamation. It's sort of very late 1864 leading up to his death, mm-hmm. uh, which I like the movie. I think it's a, a decent portrayal of who Lincoln was, if not per- terribly historically accurate. I can't think of of a less interesting time in Lincoln's presidency to portray, though. Yeah. Right? At this point, the, the North, the writing's on the wall. The seizure of, uh, of Richmond is ongoing. The North is going to win the war. It's just a question of you know, time and how many more lives are going to be spent. Um, this is, this is uh, the, the arc of the movie is about the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which Lincoln is very, um, is very involved in, but not so much as he is on the day-to-day of war, um, of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, so I just think there, could have, there, there, could, there was a much more interesting time, and if I were going to write my own Lincoln movie, it would probably be um, uh, from about 1862, when he is considering a policy of general emancipation um, to Gettysburg, thinking of that as like, and Vicksburg, thinking about that as one of the turning uh, moments of the war. And Lincoln was killed in 80, or 64, 65. This would be 65 on Good Friday, in fact. Hmm. Um, yep. Which which Melville... Ford's Theater? Yes, uh, which Melville takes, uh, takes delight in in his poem, The Martyr. Uh, really awesome poem. Um, Good Friday was the day of the prodigy and crime he begins. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Aaron, for uh, coming on the, the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it.